catches it. Stopped by Platt. Here's Steve Bold. And it's Adams. Put through by Bold. Would you believe it? That sums it all up. Hello and welcome to another episode of That Sums It All Up. How are you? I hope you're well. Today we're talking all things North London Derby, of course, after a, a brilliant North London Derby win at the weekend. And with me today is Johnny Rosen, as always. Hello, Johnny. Good afternoon. Goodly afternoon. How are you? Goodly afternoon. I am very well. I mean, it's still only Tuesday. I can't believe it. I just I feel like time's going very quickly and very slowly in our in the Arsenal world right now. Mm. And I'm just lapping up uh, all of it. I, I'm spending a lot of time looking at the table. I thought I spent a lot of time looking at the table for Christmas during the World Cup. Spending even more time looking at the table now. Uh, how are you? Yeah, I'm very well. Very much enjoyed the weekend's result. And I think honestly, like, to be fair, I actually haven't spent too much time looking at the table. Just because, you know, on your phone, you don't really get like the full like layout of the table so i haven't actually had a chance to get onto my laptop and just stare at the at the uh the full layout of the table so i will be doing that at some point but yeah i've just been lapping up all the kind of compilation videos of individual player performances and all the articles on literally all the different news outlets and newspapers and platforms and stuff like that and yeah just lapping up the content and and really enjoying it and kind of basking in that in that victory even though on the contrary to you I was less surprised by the way things unfolded albeit was not kind of used to the feeling of winning like I think even though I was confident going into the game because of how well we've been playing the the scenes at the end of the game were really quite special I think and and we'll talk about those a bit more afterwards um but you know, they really made me smile, and I think that was such a, a a beautiful moment. So, look, let's let's get cracking. Let's let's start start at the beginning. Um, so we hadn't beaten Spurs at their place since 2014, as we mentioned last week, which was courtesy of a Thomas Rosicky thunderbolt on that day as well. Mikel Arteta was captaining the side, so that's quite crazy. I mean, that's what nine years ago now, something like that just under nine years ago. And I think, yeah, it's been the first away North London derby victory in the Premier League since that point as well, if I'm right in saying. So it was a big, it was a big moment for us. And I think it was all set up for us to do, to do ourselves proud, given the way we've been playing. So I was feeling confident. You were feeling anxious. Um, Lineups were as expected Talk me through your kind of emotions as we were leading up to kickoff and after the game got underway. Yeah, I, I was. I mean, before kickoff, the lineups were yeah, as you said, they were as expected for us. For them, I, I was sort of buoyed slightly by by the team that Conte put out. I thought starting with. Um, Papsar, no matter how highly rated he is, it was his first Premier League start ever. I and mean, he was thrown in the deep end. Like, you could see, I think he struggled. 
Sessegnon on paper actually made sense because you understand he's slightly more agile, he's younger, he he probably is maybe better suited to deal with with um with Saka despite the fact that he couldn't deal with Saka at all. But on paper, you think he maybe could compared to Perisic, but he offers nothing going forward. And I actually think if Perisic was playing and started and had that chance that Sessegnon has, there's quite a good chance that he finishes that and Ramsdale ended up making an incredible save. So there are a few sort of changes that they made. Obviously, Kulusevsky coming in for them, which we sort of anticipated, was quite a big thing. I think he knits their team together really well. Uh, most of the time wasn't able to do that as the game got underway I don't know what you thought but it just seemed really really comfortable I think Kulosevsky Kulosevsky in the lineup was definitely something I kept my eye on just because he wasn't there when we played them in the return fixture earlier this year and I think we were quite grateful for that and he was their threat I think mainly a lot of what happened for them came through that right-hand side, albeit, you know, Kane and Son had some good chances too. But yeah, I mean, obviously as the game approached, I was getting a bit more nervous regardless of my kind of innate confidence about us playing well. And I think that was the main thing. I knew that we'd play the way we have been. And look, sometimes the result doesn't go your way like, like what happened against Man United earlier in the season, for example. But I thought to myself, well, what's the difference between that and today? Well, we've got Thomas Partey in the midfield, um, which we didn't have against United. Martin Erdegaard, fully fit and firing last time against United at the big away game. He was, you know, half fit at best. Um, Zinchenko just come back from injury. Uh, Saliba, I think, had a tough game. But I think we'd learned from that kind of setup and... um, yeah, I was confident that we were going to get things right this this time, and and we did. So yeah, no surprises lineup wise or anything like that. And I mean, it did strike me that we we started the game in a way that I think it got to about ten fifteen minutes or something. I was like, wow, like we, we were sort of, I mean, and then we scored quite quickly after that. But we we were quite controlled in our approach. We weren't pressing really high. I mean, apart from the occasions that Lloris got the ball, we'd sort of sprint and, and hunt him down. But, you know, we, there, there didn't. it wasn't one of those kind of characteristic, incredibly fast starts that, for example, we, we made against Newcastle and didn't take advantage of or in other games. I thought it was a bit more measured than that. And we grew and in, eased into the game, which I think actually was probably the right thing to do in, in an occasion this big. Yeah, I agree. A team more mature... Like like against Liverpool was another one where we just came out absolutely flying, and against United, you know, and had a yeah you know, we scored. You know, it was later ruled out, but uh, also against Liverpool we scored within the first sort of few minutes and were one up very quickly. I thought we actually came out not slowly. We we dominated possession. I actually was. Ex- I think maybe they were expecting Spurs to come out faster. Mm. Because Spurs didn't come flying out of the blocks either. I certainly was expecting Spurs to come storming out, although I know they haven't at all this season. Mm. That I thought they would, given that it's the derby and they would be really sort of pumped up for it. But actually, after five, seven minutes, patterns of play were just emerging. Spurs were dropping off. And we we, we weren't 
really required to to go at 100 miles now because we were given being given in time in midfield we were completely overrunning their midfield because it was basically a 4v2 in in those central areas with Zinchenko coming in and yeah I can think of obviously we pressed Lloris a few times there was that chance that Eddie had which I think was sort of seven eight minutes in uh where it started with the Lloris error and then it was actually a decent save by him but other than that, there wasn't much. And then within 15 minutes, we were still one nil up. I think that first half was just a complete show of our game management capacities, our ability to control the game. Uh, as you said, the patterns of play developing down the sides. I think down that right-hand side, especially the little triangle between Ben White, Martin Erdegaard and Bakayo Saka is developing into such a nice little triangular partnership. Uh, ben White especially would sort of bring the ball forward and then play the ball inside to Saka for him to kind of pick it up on his left foot and then drive into space, um, you know, and then there'd be nice little interchanges between um, Saka and Erdegaard. You know, they, they know where everyone is in regards to their position. And I think a lot of the, the kind of threat that we created um, sort of came down that right-hand side and I guess maybe something that I picked up was, um, you know, Martinelli worked really hard, but I think he is sort of, he's someone who is maybe feeling the effects of Gabriel Jesus's absence a bit more than, say, others because of the fact that Jesus used to drift or does tend to drift to that left-hand side and they sort of interchange a bit more. He's a he's a little bit more isolated on the that left-hand side. And I think Xhaka as well, you know, that, that kind of threat that he was posing in the first half of the season. I mean, it's still, he's still getting up the pitch, but I think it's it's slightly quieter at the moment, which is fine because we've got other players providing that threat. But um, yeah, I think overall, the kind of structure of the team, the way we were moving the ball from left to right and vice versa, uh, Thomas Partey kind of grew into the game. He had a, a few nervy moments where he was giving the ball away uncharacteristically, but he sort of found his groove and nearly cracked in an absolute screamer, um, which would have been one of the goals of the season and one of the all-time great derby goals. And um, yeah, so as you mentioned, we went 1-0 up. I think it was about 16 minutes in or something like that. And I think... Partey did really well to kind of under pressure to sort of release Saka down the right-hand side. He had loads of space to, to go into. Sessegnon kind of stood him, stood him up, showed him towards the byline, didn't let him cut inside, which I think a lot of players are starting to do now. But Saka has developed quite a good trait of just getting a shot off, even if it's not a great shot, just making the keeper work, getting it on target. And fortunately for us, it deflected off. It was off Sessegnon and then Hugo Lloris um sort of fumbled it into his own net and it almost it took like five seconds for the ground to register what had happened and even for us watching on tv it was a bit of a surprise um but you know the the sort of the way the the game was going and how we created that opportunity i suppose we sort of deserved it definitely definitely i think we completely dominated the whole first half as i said and that goal came about brilliant players you mentioned correctly um, highlighting parties role in it and then it was all Saka um, it take, I, I don't know how significant the deflection was of Sessegnon I mean it's a clear it is a, it is quite a clear deflection 
but it's really calamitous error from uh from Hugo Lloris. And and as you say, like what I was watching as well on TV. And that those initial sort of two seconds when the ball was in the back of the net, I sort of turned to my dad and my uncle who I was watching with and it was like, what was that a goal? Like we, we were sort on? of half expecting <laughs> VAR to check it. And then I think Eddie headers it in so funny, yeah. But inside the goal when he does that. So I'm like, is that could that be offside? Or sort of it, it, it seemed too easy, it didn't add up. Uh, and then you sort of saw that, and, and I think the players sort of saw that as well because they weren't they didn't run off and celebrate until sort of a second or two after it crossed the line, and then obviously they they thoroughly enjoyed uh, enjoyed the celebrations. But it was a strange goal. I think I mean it was it, it was an own goal. It was a Larissa goal. It was a terrible, terrible mistake. I can't I, I know he's been bad or not even bad but he's been sort of haphazard he's had errors in his game he's had errors in his game for a while now and he he made an error in the in the return fixture when we played them at home I think he fumbled the ball into Jesus's path um he did he did but that was a I, I can't remember him making an error as blatant as that I, mm. I mean that was I mean, he made an error also against Aston Villa um, he spilled a, a fairly routine shot mm. out, and it, I thought that went into Watkins' path, who squared it to another Villa player, and that was the Villa one 0 up, and they won two 0 Obviously, and that was also at the 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 White Hart Lane or the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, whatever it's called, the Toilet Bowl. But um, but I was really surprised and taken aback by by the ease. That he, he palmed it into his own net, and then we were in complete control. And after that, Erdegaard, Tesla, Reese from range, good save. Party hits the bar. As you say, I think that would be goal of the season if that goes in. I mean, mm. what an unbelievable strike. Um, and then we go 2 0 up. And I think the second goal also, it starts with Larice's error, or good sort of high press pressing position by our forwards. And Larissa is sort of waddling around his box and he's looking for options and he just gets fed up and just kicks it aimlessly in the direction of Kane. Saliba out jumps him, party plays it on, I think, first time to Saka. And all of a sudden we've got, I think it's a 4v3 or a 4v4, almost an overload in their attacking third or defensive third in our attacking third. Saka's pass to Erdegaard's perfect and, and it's a great strike. It was... And I think James McNicholas said this. It's very reminiscent of Fabregas's goal against AC Milan in mm. 2008. Uh, it's a really good finish. I don't, I don't know what your thoughts were. I think it was really good to see Erdegaard taking on the the strike, and I think we've seen that a lot more this season. You know, he scored eight goals now. I think he's the highest scoring midfielder in the league. He's got, I think, eight goals, five assists, or something. So that's thirteen goal involvements in in eighteen appearances, which is which is a brilliant level of output. But you know, as as you say before, he he took another shot previously, which Lloris sort of palmed behind for a corner. But it's great to see him taking on that responsibility in those shots and sort of realizing that the team requires him to do that because I think last season, you know, he was he was getting really good, but there was a lot of kind of you know, he, he'd always pick the pass or, or you know, be almost too unselfish. And this season, I think the captaincy in a way 
has really taken his his approach and his his the quality of his contributions to the next level. Um, I can't remember who it was, but I think I remember one of the Arsenal reporters saying that they suspected. I think it was Tim Stillman actually suspected that you know the captaincy on Erdegaard's shoulders would unlock a new level in him, and some players sort of mm. take on that responsibility. And it really looks like it's 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 working really well for Erdegaard. But yeah, it was a great strike, lovely precision, sort of arrowed into the far corner. I mean, maybe question marks over Lloris again. He had quite a lot of time to see it, but look, I don't think we go too much into that. Um, but it was great to see, you know, captain on the day, captain of the club scoring the second goal in the North London derby. Um, we were a complete bruise control. And yeah, the half finished, finished 2-0, I think. Just talking about cruise control, I think Alexander Zinchenko, at, well, you say left back, but he was popping up all over the place, you know, central midfield alongside Thomas Partey, sometimes on the right-hand side of midfield as well. I thought he was yeah. phenomenal in that first half. I think he's come back after this. I know he wasn't at the World Cup, but post-World Cup, and he's looked fit. He's looked, you know, really, really quite uh, excellent on the ball, off the ball, um, in his duels, in his ability to bring the ball forward, his passing, his movement, his reading of the game. I mean, a real technical leader of the team. And I think he was was absolutely fantastic in that first half, especially. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't know. I don't know if it was because it's the same with Gabriel Jesus. I, and I don't know if it was Guardiola system at City or if the fact that they have such a high calibre of player uh, at City as well sort of drowned out how good Zinchenko and Gabriel Jesus actually are. but Or, or maybe it's a mixture of, of the two and, and some other factors. But I had I had no idea uh, Zinchenko was this good. No mm. idea. Like, I thought he was good. He was obviously a very good footballer. You've got to be a very good footballer to survive as long as he survived in a Guardiola team. And actually, quite often, um, he would start in, in the more high-pressured games in the Champions League semi-finals and stuff like that and the knockout games in the Champions League. Um, Guardiola really trusted him. But it was like when Jesus arrived and hit the ground running. And I remember... When we beat Bournemouth away uh, early on in the season, he picked it up and he sort of dribbled past mm. three players and played for Martinelli. It was it was missed, but everyone sort of said, "Well, I had no idea he was that good at carrying the ball. We just didn't see it in in the City setup." And it's the same as Inchenko because mm. he wasn't playing well in City. He wasn't given the freedom to pop up, as you say, in the right hand side of midfield in like left attacking midfield region it's it's a bit like a cheat code and i thought the way they also you know again to quote james mcnicholas but the way he described zinchenko as sort of the queen of the queen in a in a chess game was mm. really really i really like that because it's so so spot on he's clearly just been given license not to Rome as like a, an Urzul was or a, or or like a Hazard was when he was playing for Chelsea, but just licensed to pick pockets and and uh, and subtly through his positioning and his technical security just create overloads 
in uh, in the midfield and the level of control it gives us is is something that I didn't think we've seen for a long time. I mean, I I can't remember controlling games like we've controlled recently since maybe you know the days of Fabregas, Kleb, Flamini, and Riziki. That sort of two thousand eight, two thousand seventeen. I don't think we did it when we had Özil, Kazola. Ramsey, Coquelin is our midfield, albeit that was a very good midfield. This seems like it's, it's another level when you add Zinchenko's technical security to Xhaka's, uh, Erdegaard's and, and parties. It's it's really, really um, pleasing to see. And yeah, it, I, I'm just blown away. I find myself every game just blown away by Zinchenko. Yeah, I think it's just that wonderful combination of like positional expertise. Obviously, we know that Pep Guardiola's system is is all about positional play and and so is Arteta's, but I think that combined with the level of technical excellence that he has, so it's technical, it's positional, but it's also, you know, providing a bit more dynamism, which I think maybe is something that we we you don't see so much um in the Man City team just because you know they've got the likes of Kevin De Bruyne who do that and and their other players whereas for us you know we're encouraging someone like Zinchenko to to sort of you know be exactly how they are on the pitch um and he's a, a proper warrior I mean he was winning every single 50-50 header against Matt Doherty and Matt Doherty is like taller than him bigger than him and Zinchenko was just timing it Perfectly. And I think that was another thing that we did really well in the first half, but even more impressively in the second half was winning the duels. Um, (laughs) There's obviously that brilliant quote from Arteta about saying, you know, how everyone should be seriously upset if they lose a duel. If I lose a duel, I'm upset, he says in uh, Arsenal or nothing. But we were winning every single one. You know, Zinchenko regardless of his size, was was winning headers. Gabriel and Saliba had Kane in their pockets. I thought Saka won some really good duels against Sessegnon and others. I think Nketiah did really well up against their their big brutes of centre-backs in Dyer and Romero and Longley, really putting himself about and, and winning headers and, and bringing the ball down. And I think that kind of aggression, that level of aggression, is something that we don't tend to see or haven't seen in sort of big away games. And I think, you know, we saw it against Chelsea earlier in the season and we saw it again against Spurs on Sunday. I think we were so up for the up for the fight. But then combining that with this elevated level of technical, like, brilliance from all our players, knowing their positions really well, where each other are on the pitch. So I think, yeah, it's that combination of positional, technical but also a real aggression um, from all the players. And I think that's maybe, you know, we were talking about the team of 2007, 2008. I think that the level of aggression and kind of physical endurance and and being up for the fight, I think is really sort of a a, a real element of this team that I think has has played a massive part in, in, I mean, the victory on Sunday, but then also our good form in general. Look, we we also, I mean, he was a spectator for most of the first half, but he did make some very, very important saves and went on to be, you know, man of the match and, and make some more saves in the second half. But Aaron Ramsdale made a really good save. I think it was a couple of saves from Harry Kane in the first half, maybe just one. And then a really good save from Hyungman Son after he got played through. It was, it was, it was a one-on-one at a slight angle, but he spread himself really well. 
I mean, he... I remember last season, Ramsdale had a really good first half of the season. He was, but he was facing a lot of shots and he was sort of thriving on that, that kind of pressure and activity. And then in the second half of the season, as we became a bit more fragile, he, his form maybe tailed off a bit, but he started this season, I think really strongly. He's, you know, facing less shots, but when he is called into action for the most part, again, and on Sunday was a brilliant example. He is stepping up big time. Yeah, I, I mean, I thought I thought um, Sunday was definitely his best performance in an Arsenal shirt. Obviously, it sort of goes without saying. Hence, the man of the match, but he was he was really really good. And I actually think, like you say, he's been he's been fine this season. He's been really good. Our defense has improved. Bringing Saliba in, moving Ben White to right back, Zinchenko's starting as left back. I mean. Personnel-wise, it's actually quite different to last season's back four and positionally as well. And so there's far less of a spotlight on him, whereas I think last season, especially as you mentioned that first half of last season where he was making some really outstanding saves, there were games where he was really being put into the positions where he's now not because we've got such a solid back four plus party sitting in front of our centre-backs plus the whole system working um, as Arteta would like it to work means that there's less reliance on Ramsdale. And I think this is the first game where we've seen um, where we've seen a reliance on him. And boy, did he sort of come and answer any questions, any doubts that there were. I think he made seven saves. Of course, not all of those were show-stopping saves, but at least three of them were, were properly... Um, I would say world-class saves. Yeah, I think the one with Sessignon when he sticks out his left foot to flick it. No, around I, thought the that, corner. I thought that was in. I thought that I thought that was in. I thought, I, I do think if that's a different player, if that's maybe as I said earlier, Perisic, or if that's Kane being played through or Son, I do think that is in. So we were sort of a bit fortunate that it fell to Sessignon, but that wasn't the only save. The one in the first half um, against Son amazing comes out off his line quickly spreads himself and we know we've you've i've heard him being interviewed on podcasts we do know that he is a footballer that performs at his best when the stakes are high when he's got and i'm sure we'll touch upon this but when he's got the opposition fans really going at him when he's inside their head they're inside his head but not in a way that it sort of distracts him, in a way that it keeps him focused and sharp, where he's getting, you know, a lot of stick from those behind his goal. I, you know, not getting kicked. I think that's completely out of order. But that atmosphere, that sort of cauldron of of sort of tension and sort of dislike, not hatred, but maybe hatred now towards him is where he performs best as a keeper. It keeps him engaged. And and that definitely played into him having his best game, I think, for Arsenal. Really, you know, hats off to him. And then it's a shame that it all sort of got torn up at the end. I don't know what your thoughts are on, on that incident at full time. Yeah, I mean, a bit of a disgrace, absolutely. But but let's before we get onto that, let, let's just talk about the second half quickly. Not that there was actually yes. too much to talk about because we're not going to focus too much on Tottenham. <laughs> yeah. But 
you know, we they did get better as they had to, but it almost seemed as if pressure was too much for them. The players, the Spurs players, you know, they did sort of move the ball forward a bit more, but there were groans and moans from the Tottenham fans and players were misplacing passes and they were struggling to carve out clear-cut openings. I think Gabriel really stepped up again. I thought he was brilliant in that second half, an absolute rock. I remember when when we first signed him, Jason McNicholas wrote a profile piece on The Athletic and wrote about how his nickname that he got in Lille was translated to the Colossus um, because of you know how huge he was and uh, sort of akin to a man mountain. And you know, I think he's been, you know, he's had a couple of shaky moments earlier in the season, like Saliba has as well. But I think Gabriel is so important for us. That balance of partnership between them, those two players at this age, in these occasions like like Sunday, I think it worked so well. I thought Saliba was very comfortable as well. I thought he did really well in the air against Kane. I thought he was quick to interceptions. I thought Ben White, I mean, I just love Ben White. Uh, I don't know if you managed to see his post-game interview for with Norwegian TV yet, but characteristically sort of one-word answers. Um, I think the, the reporter opened the, the interview with, well, that was a brilliant game. And he was like, yeah, that's all right. It was all right, isn't it? And it was just like <laughs> so half-hearted, you know, that when, when he was screaming at Sessegnon uh, to miss when, he, when Sessegnon was through on goal, there's a clip of Ben White screaming at him. You know, there are a couple of occasions where he's just boosting the ball into row Z. Um, but again, his kind of technical play, his positional play, he's brought so much to that right, right-hand side. I think he was brilliant too. And then Ramsdale, of course, excellent. There were chances for Spurs, but Ramsdale was equal to them. I think Eddie had a couple more chances for us. There was definitely one way. There was a, a ball play through from Xhaka, which was a really nice ball. Yeah. Not maybe the easiest to control, but I think it was at a stage in the game where I think Nketiah had started to run out of energy a bit. And I think his touch, his first touch just let him down slightly and Lloris made a, a decent save. But yeah, look, I was never... I mean, apart from that one moment when I thought the Sessegnon strike had gone in, I was never too worried about their comeback because... Yeah, I don't know. We just we still looked quite comfortable. They didn't pose too much of a threat, and I backed ourselves to kind of hold on. I think Ramsdale was was in inspired form. I think our defenders were too. And then we made a couple of late subs: uh, Tierney and Tommy Asu coming on, Smithrow and Vieira coming on even later for a few minutes, and that sort of closed the game off. But as you mentioned, <laughs> the game wasn't quite done then. There was a bit of a bit of an incident towards the end of the game. Do you want to run us through how you saw it and, and let's see if it kind of aligns with what I saw and and uh, what's been reported? You and I, I mean, I assume we, we, we saw it very similarly because we were both watching the game on TV, but I, it was, it was what? The ball was to goal kick. Ramsdale sort of boots it up in the air. The final whistle goes. He, he does celebrate as he's completely entitled to. I'm all for that sort of whether it's extravagant, OTT, whatever, it's a great celebration. He turns, gives the Spurs fans a bit of jib. Love it. That's what football's about. Richarlison, as is his right, reacts strongly and runs over to, to Ramsdale. I think Ramsdale sort of explains, but he's walking over to his goal to get his gloves and his water bottle and his towel. And as he's there, I think he's sort of boxed in a bit 
by one of the stewards and Amr Charleston and maybe a few Arsenal players. And then one of the Spurs fans just jumps in and looks like Ramsdale says it's a punch in his post-match interview, but it's actually a kick, sort of just like kicks him in the ribs. Mm. I don't think very hard, but it's completely, I mean, it's just absolutely disgusting behaviour from um, from the Spurs fan who should be, and I'm sure will be, you know, banned for life. And I mean, the, the sad thing about it is I did think you, you saw that it actually did affect Ramsdale. I thought, you know, he seemed a bit deflated in his post-match interview, um, didn't enjoy the celebrations as much as all the other players uh, with the Arsenal fans at full time. And it's not, you know, he doesn't deserve that. No one deserves to get, you know, physically maimed in their workplace, whether you're, a, you know, a carpenter, an office worker, or a footballer. <laughs> it's, it's, he's at work today. And, uh, what, and what a comparison. Is yeah, well, you can't just be kicked at your no. place of work just because dislikes what you've done you know and that's what's happened and it's completely out of order so that that was my thoughts on it yeah i mean uh similar to you completely unacceptable hope the spurs fan gets banned for life i think richarlison had a part to play as well you know he was pushing ramsdale's head away you know, again, yeah. quite violently in, inciting the, the probably the anger of the crowd i mean i saw jim white on talk sport today saying ramsdale has a responsibility which I think is just absolute rubbish. Not even going to go into that at all. But yeah, I think it was a shame, but also I'm glad that, you know, one, obviously Ramsdale wasn't hurt, but two, it was just showed how frustrated the Tottenham players were, that their grey, upset, despondent fans, like shouting and swearing and just doing anything they can to... I mean, maybe that Spurs fan couldn't bear to be in that stadium again and just thought, right, I'm going to get a stadium ban. So I wouldn't blame him. I would not blame him either. And I think it was a shame the way the game finished like that. But I must say the celebrations from the Arsenal players afterwards were really a sight to behold. I couldn't, I'm sure most Arsenal, every Arsenal fan watching on TV and all those that were there even more so could not wipe the big toothy grins off their faces because we were watching our players kind of celebrate a North London derby win that, keeps us takes us eight points clear at the top of the table and all our players were sort of ran over to our to the fans in the corner Arteta included after he'd been dragging Xhaka and Ramsdale away from the player melee that had broken out <laughs> uh you know Martinelli had been um Martinelli had successfully managed to chuck an Arsenal scarf onto the pitch camera um which was just brilliant to see it's the sorry to interrupt but it's just the best video I, I must have watched it 30 times today maybe more <laughs> of it's, it's, uh, it's just instagram real but the fact that like he misses in the first time and then marquinhos is sort of goading him and saying look throw it up there again and then he sort of like runs over to it and it's just pure innocence of like how old is martin Lee? 20 21 21 oh, maybe you yeah. know is a kid just playing one who's somehow become one of the best wingers in the Premier League, if not Europe, from the fourth division in Brazil over three years is just terrorising everyone. No one knows where he came from. And now he's like, he he could be a Premier League winner in six months' time. And it's just it was just so that that little clip of him and then it cuts, I think, to Zinchenko pointing out to 
um, I think is it maybe it's Steve Round or one of Arteta's assistants being like, look at the look at the spider cam. We've we've infiltrated it. Uh, it's now red and white. It's, it's it's amazing. I think it sums up just how together the team are, and it's it's sort of us against the world. Um, and 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 you know, fair play to Martinelli because he's been. I, I know we you mentioned him earlier about how he's sometimes a bit of an isolated figure on that left hand side, but I thought he was. You know, even the days where he's not outstanding, he's sort of outstanding for his defensive work rate and positioning and mm. effort that he gives. He, he never has a bad game. And yeah, and it, he's, was, it was a really nice thing to see. Yeah, and he still poses a lot of threat regardless of whether he's in the best form. But honestly, like those scenes of celebrations were so, you know, lovely to watch. Uh, I think for so many reasons. One, because we'd won the North London Derby. Two, because we'd been criticised previously for celebrating too much. And I think also the kind of the fact that Ramsdale had been kicked by the fan and the Tottenham players were getting antsy, it kind of encouraged Arsenal to be like, right, we're going to properly plant our flag here and celebrate as we intend to. And look, I'm not com- I'm not comparing this team at all to the in- Invincibles, but visually speaking, the way in which our players like ran over to the corner where the fans were in a kind of jubilant scenes was so visually like similar in my mind to, you know, the scenes where we drew 2-2 and won the league at White Hart Lane in 2004. Yeah. And they ran over to the to the players and you've got Thierry Henry and like Ashley Cole kind of running around and arms in the air. And look, I'm not I'm not comparing them. I'm stressing that right now. But, you know, it was it was such a special moment, I think, just from an emotional point of view, from everything that had gone on in the game to afterwards to the kind of journey that this team under this manager have gone on, the fans have gone on with with them. And I think, yeah, I remember sitting there on the t- watching the TV, just get a gaping smile, just watching these players that we all love so much, enjoying such a brilliant moment that they completely deserved, especially after what happened last season. great day it must be said and it left us eight points clear of Manchester City who lost to Manchester United the day before who are kind of (laughs) subtly creeping out the table Manchester United in really good form playing pretty well they play Crystal Palace on Wednesday evening this week so if they win that then they come into this game on that we're playing against them on Sunday six points behind us so I'm not even gonna I'm not gonna uh, stress about the fact that if they win, then there'll be three points behind us. But you know they 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 go above Man City if they if they win their their game in the week. I mean, albeit it's you know they would have played a game more. But I think in the grand scheme of our season, you know we beat Liverpool and we hadn't beaten them for a long time. We beat Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. I know we'd done that a few times, but the way in which we did it was slightly different. The way we've been kind of playing has uh, we're not, we've not been accustomed to, and this was certainly something that we haven't had for a long time. Performing in the biggest of occasions, the North London derby, and look, the Spurs team aren't amazing, but they still have threat and and the capacity to hurt you. But we turned up and and played our game, and I think that was brilliant. Do you have any thoughts on? I guess look, the front three did really well, really well, and Katia was unlucky not to get a goal. I thought Saka was was you know, our biggest threat kind of coming down the right-hand side, terrorising their defence. 
Erdegaard was really good. Martinelli, great as well. But it looks like that front three kind of ran out of steam towards the end. Are you concerned about, I guess, their capacity to to play the rest of the season uh, like that front three? Look, I know we've got Smith-Rowe slowly coming back. We've got Fabio Vieira there. Jesus looks like he won't be back for at least another month, if that. And we'll move on to talking about a transfer target which went wrong, but how are you concerned or, or how concerned are you on a scale of one to 10? Uh, I'm not that concerned as I sit here today. I yeah. understand why there is concern. Mm. Uh, I, I think signing a wide forward would be the, the smart move. So long as it doesn't unsettle the harmony in the dressing room, so long as it doesn't cause division, all of this, I would much rather um, not sign anyone and maintain for a 38-game league season the the atmosphere that we've built and then build upon it in the summer than, you know, go to 100 million for a Madrid and he comes in on inflated wages on a big transfer fee, feels like he has to impress. Maybe there's a bit of division. Why is he on this? Why am I on this? Etc. Etc. Especially for a player who's only played forty or fifty professional games, mm. um, so I'm not that concerned because Smith Rowe is coming back, and because Gabriel Jesus is coming back, and Reese Nelson is coming back, and Vieira is on the bench, and in a month's time, assuming you know the current front three stay fit and Erdegaard stays fit, then we will legitimately have. I think eight options for those four spaces. You know, fine. You assume Erdegaard's going to start all the time. Sacco's going to start. Martinelli and Smith Rowe might rotate a little bit. Although I think, by and large, Martinelli will start. And when once he's fit, Gabriel Jesus will come in and start again. But Eddie has shown that he's a perfectly capable replacement. Now, I think. Actually, we saw this in the Nottingham Forest game. But I do think in some of these home games that we'll have, even in the Premier League, Reese Nelson will be trusted and can be trusted or Vieira will be trusted on that right-hand side. If we could add a, a player to the roster, I would love that. But it's got to be the right player for the right price. There's no point doing it for the sake of it. And I don't think Arteta will. He's not, you know, as we saw last January when Aubameyang left and we were left without a striker, really, aside from Eddie, he um, he didn't just sign someone for the sake of it. You know, he, we could have signed, uh, I think it was Mehdi Taremi, the Iranian and Porto striker, was offered to Arsenal and was turned down because it wasn't about a body and for the sake of it. It's about, you know, someone who aligned with the philosophy, with the mentality, with the age profile, with the wage structure, with everything we're trying to build. Because what I hope and what I think is that actually, you know, we didn't expect to be challenging for the title this season. Arteta probably expected it to be next season in the same way that last season, we didn't expect to be challenging for the Champions League. But, um, but this isn't like, oh, Arsenal win the league let's say, and then fall away. This is, oh, Arsenal are here to stay for the next three or four seasons and there's a whole long-term strategy behind mm. our recruitment. I guess it's getting that balance right, isn't it, between sticking to our strategy, which I think has fed 
us, done us quite well up until this point with our recruitment and the profile of player we sign, the age of the player we sign, what sort of wages they command, what what fit they are, you know, personality wise. But then also balancing, you know, the fact that we're in the here and now and we're in a January transfer window and we're eight points clear at the top of the league. And we have still FA Cup and Europa League and 20 games still to play in the in in the Premier League. And we've got at the moment, in current circumstances, pretty much three options, maybe four if you count Vieira, because I don't think Smith Rowe is fully fit. He he wouldn't be able to start a game. Um, and Vieira hasn't started in those four positions in the Premier League so far. So it's a question of how do you balance that kind of long-term strategy so it doesn't affect your your summer plans, but then also kind of updating them given the position that we're in. And I think that's what happened last, last season. And ultimately, January was good for the long-term strategy, but maybe short-term, you know, we didn't get into the Champions League because we didn't strengthen. So again, I know a lot of Arsenal fans will be clamouring for a signing. I think it's important to get a forward of some description in. And I think clearly the club are very keen to do that. You know, there was a lot of groundwork and effort gone into the the Mudrick deal, but ultimately proved too expensive, I think. But it's not going to be easy, I don't think, because everyone knows we've got money to spend. There's been a horrendously high, another horrendously high benchmark of young forward talent set, a precedent, which all clubs are going to abide by and use in their negotiations. January is never the best time to to sign someone anyway mid-season. A lot of clubs don't want to lose their players. You know, you need someone to be able to come in and make a, an impact straight away. They don't really have a betting in time. You don't want to make the wrong signing because then you're sort of stuck with a player who you paid money for is on a sizable wage and then it impacts, you know, the summer plans. So, yeah, I mean, I think... It's it's going to be interesting to see if we can do anything over the next few weeks and what names emerge um, because, yeah, with Mudrick, clearly we were very keen and thought that we could negotiate the price somewhat with, with Shakhtar the next because I think we were very confident that the player wanted to join us and I think he did, but Shakhtar stuck to their guns and fortunately for them, Todd Burley and Chelsea are happy to spend whatever, wherever, whenever, for whoever. And I think it's it's not... Whilst Arsenal fans are disappointed, and, and I'm sure the club are too, I think the way in which Chelsea signed Mudrick and sort of went about the business showed that we were adamant of sticking to our plan and not getting into a bidding war, not overpaying which I think we probably were already going to overpay, but we were invested yeah. in that player. Yeah, go on. No, also just from my understanding of the Mudrick situation uh, is that actually in financial, pure financial terms, Chelsea's offer and our offer were identical in the the final amount. The, the difference was crucially for Shakhtar. The speed at which they were going to be rece- be receiving the upfront payment. So I think essentially both clubs bid 70 million euros plus 30 million euros in, in sort of performance-related add-ons or bonuses. The difference was not 
the 100 million mark that both clubs had essentially committed to over fixed and, and add-ons, it was that actually I think Chelsea are going to be paying out that 70 million a lot quicker than we'd committed to. Uh, and the bonuses are probably much more achievable, more achievable than the maybe the ones we'd set. Because I and I do think 100 million for Mudrik is overpaying. I, from what I've heard and read, there are a lot of people in Ukraine that think that, you know, Chelsea have sort of had their leg pulled and we would have done as well at that price. Not taking anything away from Mudrik as a player, I think we can all see how talented he is. And I was would have been very keen for us to sign him at the right price. But it was it, we got to stupid money and, and we were prepared to commit to that on our terms, not on their terms. But mm. the issue, as you say now, is we've shown our hand in this transfer market. And so, for instance, Musa Diaby at Bayer Leverkusen, who we're now being linked with and have inquired about, they're going to quote 100 million Ferran Torres at Barcelona. I mean, a player I would be very keen for us to look at is Ansu Fati, but that's um, it's another one where they're going to quote a hundred plus million. And so I just think maybe are we better looking at another position? Like I, I, I'm more worried about an injury to party than I am to any of our forward players. I can tell you that right now, and you know. Rice has clearly now been confirmed as our priority target for the summer. Could we could we sort of speed that deal up? Is there a way to do some sort of deal in January or or sign another midfielder to to tie us over in case you know the worst happens to party? Because I I do still think actually if you look at our squad, if there's one player we can't afford to lose, it is Thomas Party. Yeah, I agree. Look, I think. I mean, obviously the news that Declan Rice as our top summer target has emerged over the last day or so. So I think given that we've got a fully fit party right now, given that we've got El Nenny as his backup, given that we've got Lekonga as the third option, look, I know those two aren't great options, but I think that's something that there's clearly a plan to kind of address that in the summer. Yeah. As we as we can see now, like look, if there was an injury to say Thomas Partey, as there was towards the end of the summer transfer window, our our, our approach shifted drastically, um, and we switched our attention from a wide forward to a midfielder, and in the end, didn't end up getting either. So I think they've gone back to this forward position because they feel they desperately need another option. Because I think they realise that you know Saka and Martinelli are twenty twenty one twenty one years old. They play every single game. They're great, but I think we'll we'll be fine for the next month and a half or so, and we've got a game a week. We're actually, you know, it's every Sunday, every Sunday, every Saturday, apart from Man City in the week uh, in about a month's time. But then, you know, the Europa League starts starts coming back, and then we've got two games a week for a while. And you know, you can't expect Saka and Martinelli to play each game, even Thomas Partey starting each game. You know, a, a Europa League game and then a Premier League game at the weekend. It might just be too much. And look. Hopefully, Mikel Arteta, as we saw in the group stage this year of the Europa League, he's learned how to manage their minutes quite well, I think, during quite a busy period. So, look, I just think another body, we need another forward. I don't think we can expect Smith Rowe to be starting games regularly anytime soon. I think, you know, we're not going to see that for another, say, month, six weeks, something like that. We're going to start building his moments, minutes up very, very slowly. And I guess the other thing to say is that we've shown our hand with Mudrik 
But I guess the main thing was that, you know, we we said, look, we pay an upfront fee of something like 62 and a half million pounds. So that's, I guess, the kind of fee that, you know, is available for a winger or a forward like that. I guess, yeah, the bigger issue is the fact that other clubs around Europe are going to see this deal with Mudrik, this or the Anthony deal in summer, the Grealish deal two years ago, 100 million for a young wide forward who's playing well in Europe. So you mentioned someone like Moussa Diaby, Rafinha, who I don't think wants to leave Barcelona, but they'd be looking for, you know, over 100 million euros. Trossard is another one, which is a slightly different profile, but, you know, he'd be looking for quite high wage at this point in his career. He's 28 years old. Spurs have had I, a 12 I, million bid knocked back. I'm quite against that Trossard deal. Mm. I mean, the only way I think the Trossard deal could work, because he's clearly fallen out of favour at Brighton, is if we do a situation almost like Barcelona actually did with Aubameyang last year, and you take him on loan, and then the loan expires, and he's a free agent, mm. uh, unattached or Brighton and then maybe we have first refusal to sign him permanently if he does really well but I wouldn't want to commit to trust we've not I mean we've not signed an outfield player over the age of 25 for now over two years and I don't see any reason why we should break that because the strategy is clearly working if we do sign Leander Trossard which you you know on paper isn't the worst idea it should not be a permanent transfer. It should be a five-month loan. We can cover his yeah. wages, Brighton's hands. And then he wants to be a free agent. He doesn't necessarily want to sign for Arsenal. He just wants sort of control over his own destiny come summer, which he'll have. So that's the way I would do that deal. Well, just some breaking news, which is actually not related to the the search for a forward, but ESPN are reporting that William Saliba has rejected Arsenal's first contract offer. Apparently, both parties are willing willing in the negotiations and will continue to talk. I mean, it sounds like he's he's very keen to stay. But I do think, I remember reading that, I think the terms that the club were offering, it was going to be a long-term contract at a wage that was not necessarily as high as, I guess, William Saliba's agent would have expected, given his kind of progress and standing in the game and, you know, what he could get elsewhere. So that's just an interesting little side note. But yeah, back to the the search for a forward. I think, yeah, I think we're going to do our due diligence and and search for a forward, you know, an under 25 forward in the mould of not Mudrick, but someone else like him who profiles like him can play maybe across the front line. We were looking at Pedro Neto last summer. I know he's been injured now for a while. Musa Diaby's being linked. Rafinha we had interest in last year. Ferran Torres we had interest in last year. Trossard is probably available. So it will be intriguing to see where we go. Uh, I have a feeling that if we were to make a move for someone, I think it might be a name that maybe hasn't been reported on as of yet. I think the names being thrown into the ring at the moment, you know, your Trossards, Diabis, Rafinhas are probably kind of speculation and agent talk. Interestingly, Ferran Torres' name hasn't been mentioned really by media. It's more been about uh, by people like us kind of discussing, oh, he'd be quite a good fit. But yeah, we'll watch that space. And we mentioned that Declan Rice is a top target for the summer. I had a sneaky suspicion that he might emerge as someone that we'd be looking at. So that is also very exciting. So we'll keep an eye on that. Right. Quick preview of the weekend's game then. The big games keep on coming. It's another huge one. Hosting Manchester United at the Emirates. You can expect a red-hot atmosphere. 
I'm sure. I think this is kind of the biggest Arsenal United game for a long time, given how both teams are playing and their position in the league. It will almost be a return to old times, you know, big rivalry. They've got a new manager playing very well. The players have bought in completely. So it's going to be a very interesting contest, especially given the fact that they're the only team who have beaten us in the league this season. Uh, they beat us 3-1 at Old Trafford, even though we deserve to win in adverted commas because we played very well. But actually, they had a game plan, stuck to it and caught us on the counter. What are your thoughts on Manchester United then going into this game? I, th- I think they've come on a long way this season. I, I think Eric Ten Hag and and also the coaches that he's brought with him into the club are really, really good technical coaches, good tactical coaches. He's very... We saw with the Ronaldo situation just how disciplined, how ruthless he is. He's got his clear ideas, like Arteta had and still has, and is willing to stick by it and clearly has the support of the of the club hierarchy, which is what you need. And they look now like they're developing into a pretty solid team. You know, they don't concede many goals. Casemiro's been, you know, as really to be expected as a midfielder who's won five Champions Leagues. He's been really, really good for them in midfield. He's shored things up. He's exactly what they needed. I think going forward, that's probably where they're at their weakest. I mean, Rashford is the form player probably alongside Erdegaard uh, since the resumption of football after the World Cup in the league. But actually, if you remove Rashford from from their forward line or if he has an off day or if he picks up an injury, which actually looked to be the case at around halftime during the Manchester derby, that's when I think they look a bit, uh, you know, they could be a bit lost or a bit blunt because Martial isn't fully fit. He's not as clinical. Um, Sancho's obviously just gone on the missing list a bit. Anthony is a good player, uh, but I, you know, and, and scored and has the capability to score very, very good goals, but isn't a consistent finisher. Bruno Fernandes is hot and cold. Garnacho looks a really promising young talent. I think he's 18, but it's obviously it's not his time yet. Rashford is really carrying them offensively. And if we can just stifle Rashford, then I think we will, I think we have enough to break them down defensively and score. Um, I could see, I could see it being, you know, fairly sort of high scoring two, not high scoring, but two, one, three, two, that sort of game. Mm. I am more confident. I was in the North London derby. I think, you know, we were at the Emirates. We've been very good at home this season, obviously only dropped, We've won every game at the Emirates this season, all competitions, bar Brighton at home in the Carabao Cup, which was sort of a nothing game. And um, and obviously the Newcastle draw recently. So I think home advantage, I would expect us to win. And I think we will win, but it will be challenging, definitely. And it will be, again, like every game that we've played recently, you know, Newcastle at home, Brighton away, Tottenham away. These are really tough fixtures, you, you know, that we're we're being thrown. And so far, we're, we're jumping through them. And I think this is really one more. If we come out the other side of this, then I think, you know, halfway through the season, eight points at a minimum, we will be clear. Then I think we can start thinking about the title, but not before. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I think... They are a side who 
are starting to learn their coaches' methods. They're together. Um, they've got some really dangerous players in there. I think Casemiro is playing really well at the moment too. That's going to be an interesting midfield battle. You know, you've got your Casemiro. Having said that, I think Casemiro and Fred are both on four yellow cards and they obviously play this week. So that's one to keep an eye on. But yeah, they've got some dangerous players and they know how to hurt us because they beat us earlier in the season. They also beat City at the weekend and we play, you know, similarly to the way that they do. But Although, I think... can, I just, can I just say, they, they really should never have beaten City. And, and oh, I agree, that, I agree. That goal shouldn't... And as much as I wanted them to beat City, it's a complete farce that that goal was allowed to stand. Um, and if that goal isn't given, I don't think they go on and score the second either. And, and City... I mean, for seven, 65, 70 minutes, City absolutely dominated that game. I mean, fine, the first half was sort of 50-50, but that second half, they were all over them until a freak equaliser. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So hopefully, you know, Martial is crocked and maybe Rashford will get injured and they'll have a couple of players suspended and that would all be great for Sunday. But... Like you, I think the home advantage, the kind of consistency of performance and I think just the energy will make us very much in the mood for this game. And look, with a win, I think then you're officially halfway through the season. Still a lot of games to play, but then I think you can safely say you're in the title race because I think a lot, some Arsenal fans have been a bit hesitant to kind of put that label on it. But I think you beat Manchester United who are a close by on the table, probably, at that point, then you do that. And then I think the next big hurdle, I mean, every week, every game's a hurdle, but then you're looking towards the Manchester City game in mid-February. And if you win that, then you think, right, this is our year. So there, there's still a trajectory to kind of go along, but very exciting game on Sunday. And uh, I'm sure, yes, I mean, everyone's looking forward to it. And we'll keep an eye on all the build-up and transfer rumours, etc., etc. Is there anything else you wanted to add, Johnny, before we wrap up for today? No, I think um, I think we've covered it all. It was a good good review of, of the North London derby, good preview of, of Sunday's game. Fingers crossed. I'll be, obviously, I'll be watching United tomorrow night. I'll be watching City Spurs on Thursday, hoping results go our way. No, yeah. very rarely as Arsenal fans do we want Spurs to get a result, but I guess that's the position we're in on Thursday. I can never want them to win, but so I'll take a draw. They can they can draw with City. I think I'll be happy with that. Yeah, I agree with that. All right then, Johnny. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, thank you very much for coming on. As always, it's been a pleasure speaking, especially with such a wonderful occasion to digest after the weekend's result. Yes, thank you for having me. That sums it all up. We'll return, I imagine, after the Manchester United game. I think that'll be a good time to return and have a nice little debrief update on transfers, etc. So stay tuned for that. Quick reminder that you can find all episodes of That Sums It All Up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you all for listening. Take care and we'll be back soon. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>